Good morning and welcome to episode 980 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index, Baseball Reference, and by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hey, Ben. Hello. And we're joined by Andy McCullough of the Los Angeles Times. Andy, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? Nice Good. of you to do a podcast uh, in yeah. the off season. Yeah, it's, uh, really yeah. sorry to pull you out of your hibernation. It's it's a month today. It's been a a month today since you uh, since you recorded a podcast with Pedro. Yeah, we uh, we were going to do one at the GM meetings, and then uh, which was uh, a couple weeks ago, and then there was this thing on Tuesday that sort of took the wind out of our sails, and then uh, we decided to just you know try and live. <laughs> Uh i don't know i mean there's we would like to podcast i guess uh i just it's like a combination of my laziness and then uh also like i'm on vacation technically right now so i don't know when i started at the register and got to know the sports department and how things ran a little bit there was a little bit of a clash between the uh the the sort of old and the new because the the guys who'd been there a long time they were used to a sort of a schedule where they would work uh, every day for eight or nine months, just every day, brutal schedule, grueling, awful, horrible, life ruining. And then they would comp like three and a half months straight. They would just walk out the door on the last day of the season and never come back until until camp. <laughs> and the editors at the time who were not quite hadn't quite been there as long, they were like, dude, this is like uh, th- it doesn't stop. You, we got to keep you out here. We got rumors to report. We got trades happening and press conferences and you know, charity bowling tournaments. Uh, we need you. <laughs> we need you all year round. And it, by the time I left, it it still hadn't really been resolved. It was just basically people seething at each other. Uh, what's your schedule like? Do you get out of, do they comp you? Do they give you more time off during the season to allow for that? I mean, I assume you're going to be working pretty hard for many days over the next few months, at least. I don't know. I mean, I don't really work hard during the off season. It's all just sort of faking it and confirming Ken Rosenthal's news, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, like I think uh, I'm off this week. I'm back on after Thanksgiving, and then I'm on probably from like uh, the winter meetings to the Super Bowl, and then I'll probably be kind of off from the uh, the Super Bowl to like uh, no, no, no. Excuse me, the winter meetings till Christmas, and then I'll be off from Christmas to the Super Bowl thereabouts probably. But what? then, like you know, if when they trade Puig or whatever, I'll come and write it, or you know, you know what I mean, like. It's for kind of Ryan like, there's like hard weeks. Yeah, yeah, for Ryan Braun. You heard it here first. Like, it's like there's weeks where it's like off, off, and then it's like sort of you don't have to write. Like, so, like, right now I'm like off. So, like, the Dodgers traded Howie Kendrick, and like, I didn't write about it. But I'm sure there will come a time, probably in January, where like I'm not really responsible for writing a story that day, but if news happens, I'll go after it, I guess. Or if I come across news in my, you know, uh, you know, hyper sleuthing off-season reporting that I do, um, you know, I'll write it. Uh, well, we um, we brought you here for a particular off-season topic. I have a tradition of reading baseball books in the off-season and, uh, for the most part, never reading baseball books during the regular season unless forced to. Uh, and so I, uh, like, I'm gearing up. Like, I'm, I'm totally ready. Like, I, I'm taking three baseball books up to my parents' house this weekend i am ready to go um and i thought that we uh since we get asked from time to time what our favorite baseball books are uh and since andy always wanted to do a book club with me uh i don't think we should do i do i do too let's talk about it we'll talk about it we'll talk about it we'll talk about it i i think that i think we're we're getting there but we'll talk about it okay okay we're gonna do a draft we're gonna do a quick draft uh with ben and andy and myself in which we each draft a favorite a favorite baseball book. We're going to do three rounds each. I don't know if it has to be your three favorites. Mine are not my, going to be my three favorites, but they're three three books that I think that I would like people to read and, and that either some combination of not everybody has read it or uh, at least uh, not uh, not uh, a ton of people have read it. So anyway, every, we all have our own 
I think, uh, ways of determining which three we're going to pick, but that's what we're going to do. So, so that, that, I don't think Ben really had much, Ben, Ben had almost no preparation for this. Andy's been preparing his whole life. Uh, so I expect Andy will win the draft. Uh, John, John Chenier will keep score. Uh, and, uh, we're ready to go. So Andy, Andy, since you're the guest, why don't you lead us off? Okay. Yeah. My, uh, my first pick, uh, is a book that came out last decade i'm not exactly sure i think maybe 2004 2005 uh it's called the last night of the yankee dynasty it's by a uh, little known writer for espn (laughs) named buster Olney. i like that book it's my it's like one of my five favorite books i think wait of any of any of any topic you like it more than the dark tower series (laughs) (laughs) The, the dark tower is a bit much for me uh, I, now, uh, do I like it more than the stand that I don't know? I think that stand is ahead of it. Uh, the fight by Norman Mailer is ahead of it. Friday night lights is ahead of it. And, uh, what it takes is ahead of it. So it's either fourth or fifth. What it takes is the, uh, what it takes is the political, the one, the, the, is that the, yeah, the Richard Ben Kramer book? Yeah. yeah okay. that no one's ever finished. Be- before we go on in this, can we, maybe we should, uh, calibrate every, ourselves for everybody. We now know Andy's four favorite books. Ben, what are your four favorite books? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Andy might have just named one. The Stand might be on my list too. So, uh, you're definitely the low man on the stand <laughs> in this trio. <laughs> But uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a like a tear in my head. Really, I never bothered to to think about it. So certainly not going to do it right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I. But uh, uh, I don't. Th- I don't. Books. I don't think there would be a baseball <laughs> book in the group. Uh, you don't think there would be? Yeah, I don't think that there would be a, a baseball book in mine either. I think mine would probably be uh, the electric Kool Aid acid test. Lonesome Dove, uh, The House of Mirth, and maybe Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Mm. Wait, what is The House of Mirth? Uh, it's uh, Edith Wharton. It's a, a a comedy about social manners. Oh, interesting. Might put Great Expectations in there. Like that one. Yeah. Okay. All right, <laughs> Andy, tell me about Buster Olney and Joe Torrey. Book five of uh, Harry Potter. Book six, actually. Yeah, I would say, so uh, Last Night of the Yankee Dynasty, um, if you haven't read it, it's kind of like the same sort of structure as uh, Nine Innings by Dan Okrent, which is kind of the first, I think, of the genre to do like the, like each inning is like a separate chapter almost. Brother, I got, I've got, I'm going to, I'm going to tear that myth apart in a little bit. Woo, this is exciting. (laughs) Um, So, but yeah, it's basically the story of the uh, late 90s Yankees um, told through kind of the device of game seven of the uh, 2001 playoffs, you know, when it was uh, Kurt Schilling against Roger Clemens in uh, Arizona. And uh, just Buster was uh, on the beat at the time for the New York Times and uh, was just his level of detail uh, in this book is somewhat astonishing, um, just the amount of anecdotes and things that come across that it's just like, it's really a great, it's just a fantastic uh, sort of book. And, and you learned, uh, like you learned so much about like, not just the Yankees, but how like the sport functioned. It's kind of like, you know, you learn really how the, you know, the sport function in the nineties heading into the early two thousands and the factors around the, the league and around sort of the American league East that allowed the Yankees to build the dynasty kind of how stick Michael was sort of able to find all these players, you know, and, and you just, you learn so much on such like a, like almost a molecular level about these guys' personalities that uh, it's just really incredible. And uh, I, I really love it. And it's one of those books that people talk about like, uh, you know, season on the brink or whatever, as sort of being like sort of the classic of this type of thing. And I just think this is, um, like so much better, uh, and and I wish more people uh, read it. It's great. Yeah, I read it. That's uh, that was kind of my childhood team, so I read it because of that. And it's also a a really good book. I I had that on my list too. I don't know that I would have drafted it, but it's a really good one. I was gonna let you go next, Ben, but I want to segue to okay a more natural segue. I think I my first pick is Nine Innings by Daniel Okrent. Uh, and I, uh, <laughs> this is like, like Andy says, this is a book that basically takes random game in June, in the middle of the, uh, of June between the Orioles and the Brewers 
two pretty good teams, but this was not a, a game that you would have picked out as a classic in advance or anything, and, and, it, and it didn't turn out to be a classic. Uh, and Daniel Okrent basically uh, reported uh, this game out for what seems to be many months before and after. So he has uh, basically details about all these players uh, and about the teams and about the style of play and about the people who put it together, uh, all weaved in sort of semi-seamlessly with the action. And so I'm reading uh, this this morning, I read the um, Roger Kahn review of it in the New York Times uh, that ran at the time in 1985. Uh, and this is a, I mean, this is a classic. We would agree that this this book is generally held up as a classic right now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Roger Kahn hated it, just <laughs> crushes it. Uh, and he actually says that. Uh, so, uh, just to to your point, Andy, he he starts this with the idea of setting a book within a single baseball game goes back at least to 1955 when Arnold Hanno published a splendid, since-neglected piece of reporting called A Day in the Bleachers. He had the good sense to pick a World Series game between the Giants and the Indians, which provides a framework of great tension. And then Roger Kahn goes on to basically blast Daniel Okrent for being for picking a, a game that didn't matter enough, for basically becoming too obsessed with detail, which I uh, I have uh, read many, many bad pieces of journalism where the uh, reporter... Uh, bows at the altar of detail uh, without necessarily caring whether the detail is significant. And so I sort of get the the feeling. He also complains that he is uh, trying too hard with his vocabulary, that it feels like uh, basically an exercise <laughs> in looking things up in a thesaurus. And I, it just was not, it did not describe the book that I remember. But I sort of feel like this is a case where the stakes of the game being relatively low really does matter if you're reading it at the time. If you're asked in 1985 to devote 300 pages to a game that didn't matter, to players who were fairly generic, you might find it very interesting and informative. But I could also see why it might be sort of a slog. But the further away you get from it, and the more that it, the more that these players become not actual players that you know or care about or have heard of, but become become sort of archetypes of the sport, the more effective it is. And so, in a way, it's sort of the, it's the same frame as the only book, but a really very different experience because these are not players that you. Uh, know or naturally care about. And uh, so if I could, I would like to just read a a quick passage that I think gives you a sense of how he does this. At one point, he's describing uh, the pitcher is a fellow named McClure pitching to a batter named Dempsey with his catcher, Charlie Moore, behind the plate. So he began with a curve for a strike and followed that with a slider just low for ball one. A fastball next was perfectly planned for the off-balance Dempsey. It came in across the outside edge of the plate. The conventional misnomer corner is particularly inapt for a straight fastball. And Dempsey fouled it back. Ball two is a slider low, and then Dempsey fouled off another curve into the seats along the first baseline where Charlie Moore, McClure's catcher, dove into the lap of a fan in vain pursuit of the ball. Moore was, in a game populated by not a few bores and juveniles, a gracious man. He was nobly so whenever he committed one of the blunders that seemed to punctuate his career. Frequently, his mental lapses had cost Milwaukee victories. Two years before, in a critical game against New York in the 11th inning, Moore took a throw from an infielder and stepped on home, thinking he had made a force play when none was in effect and a tag was necessary. This blunder cost Milwaukee the game, yet Moore later stood stoically by his locker, waiting for the last reporter from the dinkiest paper to ask the predictable question for the 50th time. He was equally gracious the time he was playing in the outfield and a ball was hit over his head. Moore, still a catcher in overdrive, threw off his cap before chasing after it. And in 1980, Moore was actually caught in a rundown between first base and the Milwaukee dugout as a result of a sequence of events that defy description. Yet Moore never shrank from trying, italicized, trying to explain to credulous writers what it was that found him again and again in such peculiar circumstances. On June 10th, 1982, having failed to capture Rick Dempsey's pop foul as it veered into the box seats, Charlie Moore pulled himself out of the fan's lap, touched the man's shoulder, apologized, asked about his health, and returned to his position. The count on Dempsey was two and two. And the idea of reporting out a pop-up into the stands to that (laughs) detail is really just an amazing 
I, I would say, an amazing feat of imagination, if nothing else. And there really is a lot in this book that you will learn about baseball. I feel like that in a certain way, a lot of Roger Angel's writing at the time, too, feels like it, it was sort of like a golden age of, of smart writers telling you how baseball is played. It wasn't so much about the drama of the games or anything like that. Uh, and it wasn't so much about statistical analysis or, or so on. It was really about talking to the coaches, the players, and so on, and really like explaining how the game is played on a very minute level. And there's a lot there that I think is still really interesting and useful. Can I make a couple of points? Yeah. Real quick, best part of nine innings is the random moment when uh, Bud Selig strolls into the press box, mm-hmm. and you remember, holy shit, Bud Selig owns this team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Point number two, Roger Kahn is awesome, but he's like a supremo hardo. Um, like, I don't know if you guys have ever read October Men, his book about like the, um, uh, what, what would it be? Like the Bronx is burning era Yankees, but like a not insignificant amount of that book is dedicated to like settling old scores with Murray Chaffs from the <laughs> which I guess I should reread now, which would probably be more interesting now that I have worked in New York journalism before. And then three, um, do you think, and not to just uh, keep Ben from ever talking in this podcast, but um, based on what, I, I guess I'd be curious about what you guys think, you know, based on what you were saying about how nine innings feels timeless um, because we're sort of removed from it. Do you think like in five years, uh, three nights in August will seem less crazy? Well, it won't to us, but it would do. <laughs> it would to somebody who's, you know, graduating college right now and reads it in five years, probably. Yeah, okay. maybe not to Diamondbacks fans who've just gotten to know Tony La Russa from his time it's with that team. <laughs> yeah, but they uh, lived two but, yeah. years in last place. Oh, boy. <laughs> Me? Yeah, you. Okay. I think I think I'll take baseball between the numbers, which I think is my favorite of the stat genre of books. And I don't even know how well it holds up a decade on, but just flipping through the index of the table of contents, more than half of that book is written by people who now are running major league stat departments. And of the remaining half, A lot of it is Nate Silver, and a lot of it is really excellent, more literary writers like Stephen Goldman and Joe DeCary and Dane Perry and Neil DeMoss, who's excellent. There is no bad writer in this book. There is no, like, even average writer. There's no weak link in this book. Every chapter is written by someone who is great. And at the time, at least, a lot of the research was very cutting edge and groundbreaking, and it's such a incredible diversity of topics and this book probably had more to do with my focusing on baseball and writing about baseball than any other one book so i owe it for that and uh you know the quality of the stats and the research is great and the writing is of course very good because all of these writers are really good so i think it's about the best sort of saber metric style book you could possibly have. And I think it's tough to replicate. Of course, there's a sequel to it that I contributed to and it came out much later. And by then it was really hard to do a baseball between the numbers book. It was like really hard to follow that because a lot of questions had been answered and there just wasn't as much kind of low hanging fruit to pick up. And a lot of people had gone to work for teams, Keith Wolner and James Click, they weren't at BP anymore because they were helping run baseball teams and Nate Silver was Nate Silver. And so there was sort of a, a brain drain from baseball between the numbers that kind of seeped over into to every subsequent book. But I think it's just uh, it's just the best. It's just the, the best you can do with this sort of book. That was like 2007 or six? Six, yeah. Six, yeah. That really, I think, an, uh, you're right, that book is amazing. And anytime somebody emails us and asks, like, what's a good book for getting into to stats or getting into whatever, I usually reply with like three and then like I just count to 10 and then here comes Ben replying, also <laughs> baseball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but I think uh, maybe an aspect of that, that uh, besides the fact that these are just like really genius people who are all working together in this um, like, like uh, you know, hot box of intelligence is that the market or whatever for baseball perspectives that point was like super peak because yeah a ton of people were reading this stuff 
because Moneyball had come out, because the Red Sox had won the World Series, because this was very trendy and everybody was talking about it. And yet there really was very little that you could, you know, start your day with uh, yeah. as far as baseball writing goes. You know, you you still mostly had Nyer writing at ESPN three days a week or two days a week and BP and a little bit of stuff at Hardball Times. And then everything else was still kind of like either message board or like, you know, people commenting at like, you know, baseball primer or something like things that were like really internal and uh, sort of isolated from the mass audience. And so BP, I my take on BP at the time, because I was one of the the sort of mass of people who were looking for this stuff is just that like the company was just like kind of big. (laughs) I think that baseball prospectus is I, I always think of it in some ways as being like Saturday Night Live, where everybody is always complaining about how yeah. the season before was was better <laughs> because like they went on to make the movies and and it's just constantly creating this new churn of like awesome people who five years from now are going to be like oh wow he was at that's right he was at BP so I don't think that there's I don't think there's a general decline or anything like that I'm just saying that the market was super rich for them right then uh, mm-hmm. and it's not just the low hanging fruit of research it's like the low hanging fruit of the market and like the work that came out of the site at that point and also the books that came out of the site at that point were really, really good. I mean, that is definitely one of multiple golden ages, I think, for the yeah. for the company. And it was a really good time stats-wise because there were a lot of really interesting questions that you could still answer without them being old hat. I mean, now there are a lot of topics that are covered in that book that you couldn't really cover now because they were covered in baseball between the numbers and many other places and and at the time they were original and it was like just on the verge of pitch fx pitch fx was not around yet so you were using like play-by-play stats and so i think it's accessible you know there are people who maybe don't want to dig too deep but baseball between the numbers is like just deep enough and it's just a great introduction and and i love it i'd like to revisit it and see how much of it is wrong now but uh it's great regardless all right andy round two yeah i probably would have endorsed that book on november 7th let's see what do we got (laughs) number two uh number two for me is uh, The Lords of the Realm by John Elyar, um, which is basically uh, a story. It came out in the 90s. Uh, it's a, like a historical look uh, at the roots of collusion uh, in Major League Baseball. And it's kind of uh, essential, I think, to understanding the business of baseball, um, understanding kind of how the union was formed, uh, Marvin Miller's influence, um, you know, the factors that led to, you know, the strike. Uh, in the 90s, or there, I mean, there was tons of strikes, actually. Um, but just kind of a history of labor strife in Major League Baseball. And, uh, I mean, collusion was crazy. The whole thing is, it just sounds like completely insane in retrospect. But uh, it was a real thing. And it didn't happen, like, in the 40s. It happened in the 80s, um, which doesn't really seem uh, possible. And so it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to, uh, to read for sure. And it's just, if you like, I think from my perspective of like, you know, working in journalism and kind of trying to understand the financial aspects of some of these things and why they're important, I think it's kind of essential. I, uh, I'm glad you recommended it. I have not read it and it's, there are, I think a, a few books that I have on my shelf or that I've been planning to read or that sometimes I, I think eventually I'll read that are about basically business issues or industry issues. And I always look at them and think that's got to be outdated by now. And so I never know whether I should actually read it because the finances of 2016 are so different than, you know, 1990, whatever, 1987. It's also not the sort of topic that you uh, look, you glance at the cover and think, oh, well, this is going to be a yarn. So, so the fact that you, uh... right. The fact that you're endorsing, it tells me that both of those concerns are, are not going to apply here. Well, I think it's, you know, like we always talk about how baseball has like a much stronger union than most of the other sports. I don't know if we always talk about that, but that's generally believed to be accurate that baseball has the strongest union of all the sports leagues. And this is kind of the history of how they became that way. And Hellyar is a uh, really good writer. I believe he worked at the Wall Street Journal for a long time. He may still work there, but he wrote, um, he co-wrote Barbarians at the Gate, that uh, book in the 80s about um, kind of the takeover of uh, R.J. Nabisco. 
with uh, Brian Burroughs. And uh, so he's like, he's a really talented business writer and makes it, uh, makes it entertaining. You know, it's not like, I don't know, you don't, it's not like a great book in terms of like uh, literary descriptions of baseball per se, but it's definitely not like dry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. That's good. Okay. Sounds good. I read a book, I mean, this is not my endorsement, but I read a book uh, that about a year ago called Baseball's Power Shift by Christer Swanson, and it's all about the union over the course of a century, and I would just generally recommend that. It is not my pick here, but I want to recommend it just because I imagine there's a book that very few people know exists and that I was uh, riveted by. All right, I'm going to pick with my second pick a book that came out not long ago, uh, 2014? 15, 14, I think 14, uh, by Scott Simkus called Outsider Baseball and uh, subtitled The Weird World of Hardball on the Fringe, 1876 to 1950. And to a little tiny degree, this was a little bit of a, of a book that made me excited to write our book. It is all about independently baseball and uh, fringe baseball and uh, uh, lower league baseball and aspiring major leagues that didn't become major leagues from the first century, more or less, of uh, the game's professional history. And I uh, will tell you why I love it in a second, but one of my kind of less popular baseball book opinions is that I don't really like the glory of their times all that much. I like it fine. It is a book that I think a lot of my friends think is the greatest baseball book ever, and I feel a, a bit sad that I don't get quite as much joy out of it as I'm supposed to, but... Glory of Their Times is basically a book that is an oral history of early Major League Baseball. And it's interesting and there's good stories, but I don't think early Major League Baseball it itself counts as Major League Baseball. I think it's it's like a it's a farce masquerading as uh, as Major League Baseball. Like I don't really take it that seriously. And so if I'm gonna read about that era, I actually really prefer to read about the super weird and this book, Outsider Baseball, is like about the super weird. It is like really a great tour through these leagues that you can hardly believe exist of, you know, men playing in dresses and, and things of that sort, but also of leagues that were very aspirational and really like were trying to get to the same level as the major leagues and that were continually coming up short because of their own incompetence uh, and lack of professionalism. And... There's also within it, there's this sort of through line of, of Scott Simkus trying to basically uh, solve the mystery of how all these leagues compare to each other in terms of quality and whether any of these leagues were really as good as the major leagues, how close they were, how do you translate stats, how, what do you do if you know that a guy you know had certain numbers in 23 games of barnstorming in you know 1908. So he takes this on as like this... Um, analytic mystery that I found very enjoyable. I think that there are, if you're not really into writing analytical baseball pieces, that part is sort of superfluous uh, and takes you out of the narrative a little bit, but it's really easy to skip. It's usually just at the end of the chapter. Uh, he does a little math, uh, but for me, it was great. It was like two separate books uh, in one, and I just loved it. I uh, took a lot from it and remembered it and uh, remember being sad it was finished. Yeah, I've been meaning to read that for a while because I know you liked it a lot, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. It sounds good, though. All right, I'm going to take Vekas and Rec, which I think is probably the best baseball book I've ever read. I, I read it in 2012, and it just I think I got like four articles out of it <laughs> as I was reading it because just like everything in it seemed to apply to something in 2012 baseball, and it was written in the early 60s. So it's been around for a while, and it just the writing is really fresh. I mean, this is pre-Ball 4, and... Yet it's just a, a very unvarnished look at the game, and it's co-written with Ed Lynn, the sports writer, and it's just, I guess the, the main takeaway is that you like you want to be Bill Vec's best friend as you read it, and you're really, really sad that you can't be Bill Vec's best friend because he seems like just the, the greatest company and the smartest guy and the most original thinker, and... There are tons of great stories spanning his whole family's long history in baseball. Of course, the crazy promotions and everything that he had done up to that point. But 
Also, he just takes you behind all of the personnel decisions and the business side of the game you learn a lot about. And he's just, you know, a very out-of-the-box sort of thinker. And so even though this was written a long time ago, he seems like he would have adapted perfectly to baseball at any point. If he had come along later, he would have been the first to embrace stats or whatever. He would have been on the at the forefront of whatever movement happened because he was just incredibly creative like that. And it's just a, a fun read. And there's like a lot of baseball wisdom in there, timeless baseball lessons. So I think it's it's probably the most fun I've had reading a baseball book and maybe the most I've learned and none of it feels out of date. So go read Becca's in Rec. I, uh, I made a big mistake early in my life. I was at a used book sale and there was a copy of it for a quarter and so I bought it. And so it has been the copy that I've had on my bookshelf all this time and it is a terrible copy. It's gross. It's falling apart. It doesn't seem like it would hold together very well. And for that reason... I never choose to read it. And if I had just not bought that, I would have bought a good copy years ago and I would have read it and I'd be very happy. I loved the piece that you wrote about reading it in 2012. And you should link to that on the Facebook page because that was that is also a very good read. Uh, but I uh, I think I even bought a new, a better copy of the, the sequel or like the, his follow-up book. And I'll probably end up reading that one first because it's just such mm-hmm. a nicer bound copy <laughs> i gotta throw it away in fact hang on <laughs> should put this on your um patreon uh get your supporters to buy sam a buy sam copy. a new copy yeah the, the, let him spend the five dollars for a used copy on amazon.com yeah <laughs> he just threw oh, it that out. sounded like a book going into a garbage can all right. Okay. Tomo- uh, tonight or tomorrow morning, I'm going to order a copy of it. I no longer own the book, and uh, I will read it as soon as it shows up. Okay. Oh, man. Good times. Okay. Uh, my last pick is Season Ticket by Roger Angel. Uh, it's mm. his 1988 collection. It uh, spans from, I want to say, yeah, 83 to uh, 87. And so, you know, those are some – and so basically, like, the way Roger Angel – collections work it takes just kind of all his stories about baseball from you know the new yorker during the period of years he's got there was a bunch there was the summer game came out i think in like 70 uh five seasons came out in 75 uh late innings came out i want to say like i don't know like five years after that anyway they all span about five years they're all great season ticket is my favorite uh because it contains um i think i think it 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 barely beats out uh late innings late innings has uh his profile of bob gibson uh distance which is probably my favorite roger angel story but this one has his profile of uh dan kiesenberry uh it's also got uh this entire essay about uh the pittsburgh cocaine trials which were insane you know it talks about the 85 mets uh the 86 world series and I think his cha- his sort of essay on the 86 World Series, uh, Not So Boston, is uh, probably, you know, for obvious reasons, is incredible to read in retrospect. So, yeah, there's just, I mean, Angel is just such an enjoyable writer. Um, he's probably the biggest, I mean, he's the first writer I remember reading and really giving a shit about baseball. I played football when I was a kid, and um, baseball just seemed like a dumb sort of thing for people who couldn't play football. And uh, But I also really liked reading and stuff. And so, um, you know, once I started reading Roger Angels, when I sort of was became somewhat interested in the sport of baseball. So, uh, yeah, and this is his favorite collection. I try and read one of his collections uh, at some point every year. Uh, I read the late innings this year, but I'll probably take another spin at season ticket next year. Yeah. Yeah, the only reason why I didn't take an Angel book with an earlier pick is that I wasn't sure which one to take. I'd, I'd have to, like, go back and reread them to figure out which yeah. one was best, and so <laughs> I just felt like I couldn't take any of them. But, but yeah, I mean that's that's a great pick. There's also uh, there's a great one in uh, late innings where he uh, it's like the first essay I want to say is when he's um, talking about sort of how outrageous the contracts have gotten, and uh, and I remember reading it. I think uh, yeah, a couple couple months ago, and thinking uh, you know like wow, like George Brett had a five-year, $6 million deal and just reading all these things. And I was thinking, man, all these guys make more money than Sal Perez. <laughs> yeah. It's a long setup. 
<laughs> there's also the collection uh what is it game game time the one from like 2004 ish and it's yeah, uh it's like a career like, spanning one right right he also did a book with david cone i read that yeah i have not read that book. i read that one uh the yeah well i read that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I remember enjoying that one. Yeah, they're uh, they're good together. Uh, it's a little bit stretched, I think, as a topic. I think, uh, well, isn't it, he wanted to do like a year in the life with David Cohn, and I think it was the year that Cohn went to the Red Sox and was like absolute trash. And so yeah. like, it didn't exactly uh, like work out, I guess. But, you know, it's Roger Angel writing about David Cohn. It's not bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's good. I wrote, a, I took a lot of notes from that book. Mm. All right, my last pick is um, Prophet of the Sandlots by Mark Weingartner. Have either of you read this? No. So this might be my favorite baseball book. Dollar Sign on the Muscle might be my favorite baseball book. This one is, in a sort of sense, it's kind of a good companion book because it is also about scouts and particularly uh, one single scout. And they came out within a decade of each other. And so they're actually kind of fun to read one after the other. I think I like this one more, which is kind of amazing based on how much I like Dollar Sign and the Muscle. They're very different despite being about scouts. I, I sort of always feel like Dollar Sign on the Muscle is the, the book about scouting that was written for stat heads and Prophet of the Sandlots is kind of the book about scouting that was written for scouts. Uh, and so Mark Weingartner was, is, is a novelist now and I, I believe like a creative writing teacher in an MFA program or something like this. This is his only baseball book, I believe. Might even be his only nonfiction book. He was 27-ish, and he somehow he hooked up with this guy, this scout, Tony Lucadello, who at the time was in his mid-70s and is one of the names that you sometimes hear or that is sometimes offered as the greatest scout who ever lived. He had signed dozens of players. He signed Mike Schmidt. He signed Fergie Jenkins, and he was still going for the Phillies in the late 80s. Uh, And so this 27-year-old writer guy, probably a grad student or something at the time, uh, latches onto him and says, hey, can I just follow you around? Can I just ride with you for a while? And they end up riding together for a really long time, uh, for a, a year or something. And he learns everything there is to know about scouting from this uh, guy who's going around to these tiny schools, tiny junior colleges, and and also big schools, and and trying to keep going. And it is, you know, that movie Spellbound about the spelling bee. No, nope. really? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? How do you not know the? How do you not know Spellbound? It was like super twee documentary classic. Yeah, like. So maybe seven, eight years ago. It was a big old Not hit. all of us just sit around on Netflix yeah. all day, man. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> Spellbound is a documentary about the spelling bee, and, and they follow like eight kids. And at the end of the documentary, like one of the kids they one of the kids they found like uh, that they were following like won it, I think, or was in the final. And there's, I don't know, there's like 300 people in the spelling bee and they only followed eight of them. And you're like, what, how, what are the odds that you would get the guy who won or the girl who won? It's like amazing luck. Or did you just actually follow all of them and you just didn't show us or what? And you're trying to figure out like how they reverse engineered the results of the spelling bee so that on day one of practice, they knew who to be with. Anyway, this book sort of feels like that at the end. The ending, the final chapter is just, incredible and shocking it's an amazing book all the way through every page is great it's uh it's it's very melancholy it's much less uh well it's it's not just a story about scouting like dollar sign and the muscle but it is really a deep story about this one scout it's a story about a lot of really kind of dark sort of aspects of you know life and at the end of it you're like wait a minute like this is how did he know that this was the scout to follow to write one of the greatest baseball books ever? Anyway, I love this book. I think it's an incredible book about baseball. You see the reflection of every aspect of the game in this guy. So you you see you know what this sport means to everybody from GMs to junior college coaches to players uh, in these very brief glimpses through his eyes. And then you see a lot about him. I I can't say enough about it. I I think it's a masterpiece. I will say one thing. uh, Under no circumstances should you read 
the forward before you read it. The forward uh, is by Dan Okrent, and you're going to go, oh, he's he's good too. I want to read this. Don't read it. Don't even read one sentence. You just have to flip past it. It is a book killer to read the forward. Go back and read it afterward. Just read this book. It is a masterpiece. I, I can't recommend it enough. Is it spoilers in the yeah, forward? Yeah. Uh-huh. It is definitely mm-hmm. spoilers. Don't like spoilers. Yeah. Yeah. It's spoilers. What's the name of the book again? It's called Prophet of the Sandlots. Okay. All right. Well, I don't even know what to take now. I was uh, I was going to take either Dollar Sign or a Roger Angel book if they were still on the board, and uh, they're not. So I guess I will take the numbers game. I like the numbers That's game a, good one. a lot. In fact, I would probably, if you were to send us that email about how you learn about baseball stats or how you get into baseball stats, that's probably the number one place to start. Not so much for the actual stats and the research and the sabermetrics and all of that, but just the history of baseball stats, which goes back as long as the history of baseball. And it's by Alan Schwartz, who's a really good reporter. And it's not even the first book that comes up if you search for the numbers game on Amazon. It's uh, There are many books in the numbers game, so uh, do the one with baseball on the cover. And it goes back to the very beginning, Henry Chadwick, and how he decided what stats to keep. And it goes all the way up through... Bill James, or probably after Bill James, it it came out, I think, the year after Moneyball. And it's just a really, really informative and readable summary of the history of everyone who has ever cared about baseball stats and tried to preserve them and shaped the way that we track them today. So it won't teach you how to be a sabermetrician or anything, but it's almost more valuable than that just so that you know what came before and how long these efforts have been going on and what all the steps have been throughout the the decades. So really good book. As I recall that and also dollar sign on the muscle, I think you correct me if I'm wrong about numbers game, but I think both of those books are also kind of bank shot biographies of branch Ricky. If you want to read good biography of branch Ricky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. uh, there, I, I have, I have not read a good Branch Ricky biography. I don't know if there is a good one and I just have missed it or if there isn't a great one. Uh, but there is a lot of good stuff about Branch Ricky. If you pick up pretty much any baseball book about the middle of the century. Yeah. And by the way, if you're new to the podcast or new ish to the podcast, we did a, a dollar sign on the muscle episode about three years ago, episode 324. And we had the author on Kevin Corain because the book had just been re-released by BP, which you can buy it on Amazon and you should. So you can go back and listen to that if you weren't with us then. I think you can also probably go find the story I wrote for Sports on Earth about that book. Oh, that's right. Delaware. Yeah. You went to Delaware? Oh, because you were, you live in Philly. I was living in I was living in Jersey then. Yeah. So I went yeah. to uh, I went to Delaware to talk to Kevin Curry. He was great. Really nice guy. Um, and I enjoyed the book. Uh, I just uh, did some googling and uh, found out how uh, Sam's book ended. And uh, holy shit! Yeah, you guys should read that book. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. I just told you. He just spoiled it. I just told you <laughs> I didn't not spoil to. Anything. I just said read I just said read it. You but for it. you. You spoiled it for yourself. I'm bad at, uh, yeah, I mean, this, I guess, is a, a, a flaw in my personality. Uh, I don't really like surprises. Yeah. So, like, I, uh, like, when I, if I'm watching a show or something like that, like, I'll just read all the Wikipedia summaries to find out what happens, I guess, and then watch it. Um, or sometimes read along. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just sometimes I, cause I want to know what happens, you know? And, and so it takes some time and to watch it. So yeah, no, I find, I'm going to go read that book. I'm really excited to read it. Now. I want to see how it gets to that place. I do the opposite. I don't want to start new shows. I don't want to have to watch shows. Once I start a show or once I'm watching a show, it just takes over, you know, I, I don't, I don't work until it's done. And so I will frequently read all the plot summaries just so that I don't watch it. As soon as I get the spoilers, then I go, oh, okay, now I know how it ends, and I leave it. That makes sense. Mm. So I read a lot. I read a lot of TV shows, uh, summaries that I never see an episode of as like a defense. <laughs> makes sense. It's like a vaccination. Huh. Hmm. I don't like recommending baseball books, by the way, because I feel like people expect me to have read more of them than I actually have. Like I feel like since I 
write about baseball and wrote half a baseball book, I should have read more baseball books and I I should have like an encyclopedic knowledge of baseball books. And often the person who's asking might know more baseball books than, than I do. Like I've read a, I guess like the most concentrated period of baseball book reading in my life was probably like eighth grade or so because my homeroom teacher, Mr. Ryan, had his whole classroom was full of baseball books. Just every shelf was covered in baseball books. And so I would just constantly read them. And it was like all I read at the time was baseball books. So I read, you know, all the like classic like baseball in 41 and the boys of summer and October 64 and kind of all of those sort of narrative driven season books. And now I don't really remember them. I I have vague impressions of how I like them, and I remember the names and the stories and stuff, but I couldn't really tell you in detail how good the books were. So a lot of my baseball book reading is kind of lost to memory, at least in the specifics, and I don't read them as much now. So if you're looking for more and some less obvious ones, there is a, a thread in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild like Every week, someone will ask, what are some good baseball books? Instead of searching for like the 50 previous threads started with the same question and all of them have like a hundred comment responses. So you can just, you know, find a reading list for the rest of your life just by searching in that group if you're interested. Ben does have, by the way, an encyclopedic knowledge of every baseball article that's been written on the internet in the last seven years. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's what I've been doing instead of reading baseball books. Right. Yeah. Reading smaller books. <laughs> What's, what, yes. Do you have any non-baseball books to recommend, Ben? I always blank when someone just asks me for a, a book. Like, there are so many of them. How am I supposed to pick one? I'm reading Console Wars right now, which is about the uh, Nintendo Sega console war in the uh, late 80s when Nintendo was dominant with the NES and Sega tried to take over the market with the Genesis. And it's pretty good, pretty interesting. What are you reading, Andy? Uh, I'm reading um, The Invisible Bridge by Rick Perlstein. Uh, it's kind of a history of yeah. the American conservative movement from 73 to 76. Um, I just started it today. I finished um, today uh, Black Flags by Joe B. Warwick, the, his book about ISIS. So, you know, really optimistic stuff. Uh, <laughs> trying to just ease into the winter, you know, just learn about the world. When uh, when I was trying to come up with my fourth favorite book it was between mrs frisbee and nixonland it was actually between those i've never i don't know if i've ever been more engulfed in a nonfiction book than i was by nixonland and i hated invisible bridge i probably read 150 really? pages and then and then just skimmed like mad uh, after that what uh i mean because it's it seems i mean i'm like 15 pages in it seems the same what's the issue uh, it just felt like uh, it felt very uh, much more repetitive, and it felt uh, a lot more kind of like just disconnected data dump of like headlines from each yeah, week. Okay. And I'm almost afraid to revisit Nixonland because I'm worried that it's that it actually was the same. Yeah, Nixonland definitely took some work, uh, but I, I very much enjoyed it, and uh, I think because Perlstein kind of framed this book as, as almost like, you know, why the concept of American exceptionalism won out uh, when it probably shouldn't have in the 70s, like why instead of being a nation of people who felt like, you know, our leaders should be uh, watched at all times, we went back to being a nation where our leaders should be trusted at all times. Um, so I thought that was particularly intriguing given stuff going on out there in the world. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see... Uh, how it goes. I imagine it's it's going to take a little while, but uh, I, I enjoyed Nixon Land. But I also just I'm I'm a big Nixon guy. I very much enjoy yeah. reading about Nixon. Yeah, me too. I much prefer reading about the '60s than the '70s, and I much prefer reading about Nixon than almost anybody else. My we're a Nixon family. <laughs> not not like pro Nixon, but like like we go to the Nixon Museum and like we really just like that. Like that very small sliver of American history is my favorite era, I think. Yeah. Nixon is my Ricky. second favorite movie. Uh the, mo- the movie Nixon. Really? How great is that movie? Yeah, that movie's great. It's like what one about, of the funniest movies ever made. Yeah. What about uh, the Kirsten Dunst Michelle Stewart vehicle Dick? Was that Did you like that? With Dan Hedaya as Nixon? I don't I don't know that I've seen Dick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. With Dan Hedaya as Nixon. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's uh that's it that's the first annual effectively wild baseball book club <laughs> all right all right have a good uh, holidays see you, you guys too. all right so that is it for today speaking of baseball books while we were recording this episode we got an email from our editor that our baseball book the only rules it has to work our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team is getting a third printing so a bunch more copies are coming out for the holidays they'll have a few corrections incorporated into them which means of course that you should all go rebuy the book and if you do want to buy it there is an amazon lightning deal on the book this sunday november 27th at 7 15 p.m eastern i don't know exactly what the lightning deal is but it's some sort of sale so set a reminder if you want the book you can probably get it cheap then or if you want to get it for someone for christmas you can do that then too and of course the website for the book is the only rule is it has to work.com you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on itunes get the discounted price of 30 dollars on a one-year subscription to the play index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code bp you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild Five listeners who have done so already, Troy Clowder, Niels, Matt Richards, Josh Gosser, and Doug Gale. Thank you. I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. Michael Bauman and I talked to Jay Jaffe about the Hall of Fame, and we also talked to the Astros' Alex Bregman about his first year in the big leagues. And the video game podcast I'm doing with Jason Concepcion is still churning out episodes, usually weekly, to this week. If you're interested in checking that out, you can find it on the Channel 33 feed. If you want to contact me and Sam, you can email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or message us through Patreon. We hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you're traveling, we hope you stay safe, and we will talk to you soon. One of the things that, that me and uh, my friend Barry Zaluga like to talk about is the idea that the worst possible thing a book could ever do is like if it's you on the cover holding baseball. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the cover of your guys' book should have been. It should have been like Sam, like wearing the outfit he wore every day and like Ben, like wearing like, you know, like a catcher's mask or something like that would have been good. One of us would be making a face and then the other would have his arm around the one making a face and be looking down and I'm not sure which should be making the face. I guess I, I guess I should be making the face, probably like a big like laughter face, like the you kind of do face like regional that, covers. Oh, positions for the East Coast and West Coast. Why'd you leave Silicon Valley to run the Padres? Yeah, well, it wasn't to stand around on a day it wasn't supposed to rain and waste money. <laughs> no, seriously, why baseball? Uh, you know, it was the math, the patterns. I learned that if you study the data long enough, it's like you can predict the future. So you came here to be a fortune teller? Yeah, I've done it right for myself. For a guy from Queens? Yeah, well, look, I needed something to believe in, something that I could predict, something that let me know I was going to get out of there. And sabermetrics, math, did that for me. Look, I know what you're trying to do here. You're trying to keep me out of the umpire's room. It's not going to work. Seems to be so far.